a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, we welcome you to The Brian Hyde Show. My guest is James R. Harrigan, and James is the host, one of the co-hosts, actually, of the Words and Numbers podcast. James, how are you? I'm doing great. And, you know, maybe you can steal me away from the words and numbers. Who knows? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. You guys do a quality job. I'd, I'd, I'd rather just kind of ride on your coattails for a little while, if that's okay. Yeah, it's absolutely happy to have you along. We've been doing it for about three years. And, you know, as is often the case, three years of hard luck and hard work and dedication. And now we're lucky. Been an overnight sensation after three years, but well, I, I like that uh, you and Anthony bill your podcast as uh, what is it? Sane and and thoughtful analysis. You know, you know the tagline better than I do. But it, it, you you're not you're not hyping. This is for real. You guys give a very good analysis of what's going on. Yeah, we we decided early on, and this was I think even pre podcast days when we were just writing newspaper articles. We decided early on that we were never going to be the flamethrowers that would appeal to Fox or MSNBC, that we were going to be two very well-educated guys giving their best interpretation of the things they saw happening out in the world. And I think that that doesn't make you an overnight sensation, but as time, as time passes, people catch on and they stick with you because you're not insulting their intelligence. And it, it seems to have worked. There's way too much shouting of bumper sticker slogans going on in the world today. So it's it's nice to have a break from that. And there's a topic that I want to broach with you today that I'm actually glad. I'm glad you're the person I'm having this conversation with because it's a conversation that not very many people can have a sane, rational discussion about. And that is the law, the police, you know, respect for the law and so forth. Um, I don't think I've seen a year when I've seen a greater breakdown in, in trust in government institutions. And for that matter, um, just you know, anger and distrust being directed toward the police. What, what are your thoughts on, on the passing scene regarding the defund the police movement? Yeah, it, it has gotten kind of weird, hasn't it? And the, the truly weird part of this is that when you look at the people who are clamoring for uh, what they call defunding the police, I'm not sure they or I even know what that means. But the people who are clamoring to defund the police are inevitably the same people who have called for more government for generations. Right. So there's a disconnect in the center of, of their minds. And I don't think we can solve that. Right? Cognitive dissonance is what it is. And people will learn to live with all kinds of things when, when it comes right down to it. But this is part of a much bigger story that the partisans on either side really don't have a handle on at this point. Um, how much government do you want and what kind of authority do you want that government to bring? Those are the first questions you should ask, not what are we going to do with the police, right? The, there are prior questions that yield answers to what are we going to do with the police, but you have to take them in turn and you have to start where you need to start. And that's a very difficult thing for people who want to be outraged and want their outrage quenched immediately. Right? So no, I... what are we going to do with the police? Right. What the hell are we going to do? 
Can I say hell? I'm sorry. Let me pose a question to you because I'd like to get your take on this. I, I'm, I'm guessing that your age and guessing that we're probably fairly close in age. But do you remember a time when police were less militarized, less uh, enforcers, more peace officers? Does, does that ring a bell with you or was that not your experience? Uh, yes and no. Right. Uh, I, in my experience, the police were always a problematic institution because even where I grew up in, in Connecticut all those years ago, the police did fancy themselves. Let's just say they weren't peacemakers. Right? It, it was something else. And I was never able to get a handle on it. And certainly what we're seeing now isn't what you and I saw back then. Right. There is an intervening period during which the police became highly militarized and they even see themselves. They present themselves as warriors now, which I think is is very problematic. I don't think anybody wins when that's the case. But it was often the case back in the 80s when I grew up that the local police force was comprised of the, you know, the bullies from from your high school. Right. They just grew up and got a badge, a stick and a gun, and they became problematic, too. And I think the real lesson here is that anytime you give a group of people the ability uh, to to use force on everybody else, you can't be terribly surprised when they do. Right? They're, they're going to do that. And you, you need real institutional impediments to that happening. And I think as a society, we don't have them as long as there's something out there like qualified immunity when the police can act with utter impunity. Well, unless you can hand, unless you can hold their feet to the fire in a court of law, of course you're going to get bad answers. And we, we don't. We're not taking that one on at all. A few cranks in the wilderness bring it up every couple of weeks, myself included. But as a, you can tell, right, the Republicans are running Congress right now. They, they could have acted on exactly this point, and they punted. The Supreme Court punted. Well, we're going to continue on getting the exact same results as we've always gotten because all of, the, all of the circumstances remain the same. And I think that's heartbreaking, but I think I can predict it with 100% certainty. It seems like the, the biggest thing that I started to notice, and this is when I really started paying attention, maybe 25 years ago, was that uh, what, what we call justice tends to serve the interests of the state more so than the actual cause of justice. And what opened my eyes was a friend of mine who was a sheriff's deputy who served as a bailiff in the courtroom there at a district court for many, many years. And the the comment he made to me was, he says, you know, I've stood in that courtroom for many, many hours. And he says, I am convinced you get exactly as much justice as you can afford. And I was like, wow, that's quite an admission. I think ultimately... I think ultimately that's correct. It's sad, but correct. And a good way to think about this for non-experts, I think, is, okay, imagine that you have been wronged and, and the police captured the person who wronged you. Why doesn't he have to pay you? Why does he always pay the state? Right. If you're the one who was wrong, we can identify the victim and we can identify the perpetrator. To me, it seems really easy to solve the next problem. And yet we don't do it that way. And I, I think that's really a problem. And when Antoni, Anthony Davies, my co-host on Words and Numbers, when we think about these sorts of things, we think about justice in terms of torts, right? We, we think about how you can be made whole by the, the, the person who perpetrated a wrong upon you. And if you can answer that question, we're done here. 
right? That should be the totality of the justice system. Now, there are a class of crimes where you cannot be made whole. And I think that's properly understood criminal justice, and we'll deal with the courts there. But if we were to bifurcate these two things and have perpetrators pay off victims in a torts case, well, look at the the pressure you've taken off the legal system because that would happen almost instantaneously. You could even figure out institutional ways to make it happen outside the court system. Um, But we seem not to be willing to think about things in this way. And what results? The United States, our country, locks up more of its own citizens than any other country in the world. And that's in raw numbers and per capita. We are far and away the leader in locking up our own people. And do we really want that? Do you really think that, what is it, 7%-ish of the people in the United States need to be in the criminal justice system at any given point in time? Because to me, that sounds like overkill without question. And here's what happens. You make a law because people out there say, well, there ought to be a law. So a law gets made. But what they never do think about is that that law is enforced to the point of death. Meaning to say, if you don't follow the law that they just passed for a number of steps down the line, sooner or later, you get shot by a policeman. And every law brings every law brings with it a death penalty. So how many laws do you really want? Do you really think a death penalty is in order for, oh, I don't know, selling loose cigarettes in Manhattan? Or, I don't know, passing a counterfeit $20 bill. Because two guys who did exactly those things got killed for doing exactly those things. Who was the victim here? Not so easy to tell. No, I, I think you've laid it out uh, clearly. And I know I know it makes people uncomfortable. And at the same time, we probably be, we probably should be willing to face uncomfortable truths rather than just, you know, reassure ourselves oh you know it'll work itself out somehow we got to take a quick break my guest is james r harrigan he is one of the co-hosts of the words and numbers podcast and also an excellent uh, writer too in fact when we come back james i want to talk about a recent column that you and anthony davies uh, just had published on the foundation for economic education's website talking about how we're losing our respect for the law and and it's it's another eye-opener. Stick around. We'll have that discussion just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Thinking about life insurance? What if you could make one free phone call and learn your best price from nearly a dozen highly rated price competitive companies? Well, that's exactly what happens when you call SelectQuote Life. For example, George is 40. He was getting sky-high quotes from other companies because he takes meds to control his blood pressure. But when I shopped around, I found him a 10-year, $500,000 policy for under $25 a month. I'm SelectQuote agent Dan Savino, and believe me, If SelectQuote isn't shopping for your life insurance, you're probably paying too much. 
For a free quote, call 800-523-3771. That's 800-523-3771. 800-523-3771. Or go to selectquote.com. Since 1985, we shop, you save. Get full details on the example policy at selectquote.com slash commercials. Your price could vary depending on your health issuing company and other factors. Not available in all states. Hi, this is Jay Farner, CEO of Rocket Mortgage. Making the right financial decisions has never been more important. We can help guide you to those right decisions now when they matter most. Mortgage rates are near historic lows. So when you call 8338-ROCKET or visit us at rocketmortgage.com to start your refinance, you'll be well on your way to saving money every month. The rate today on our 30-year fixed rate mortgage is 3.375%, APR 3.59%. Right now could be a great time for you to take some positive financial steps forward with a cash-out refinance from Rocket Mortgage, which could give you the boost that you're looking for. In addition, we may be able to help you refinance with little or no out-of-pocket costs. At Rocket Mortgage, we're committed to every client, every time, no exceptions, no excuses, giving you the best mortgage experience. Call us today at 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com to learn more. Rates subject to change. Pay 1.875% fee to receive this discounted rate. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. And MLS number 3030. Hey, Mike. How's the house coming along? <sighs> Needs a ton of work. The pipes are leaking. Needs a new roof. The AC just broke. I just don't have time to do it all myself. You know anyone? Oh, just ask HomeAdvisor. They match you with the best local pros for any home project. Cool. Yeah, you can read reviews and book appointments online. What's it cost? Actually, HomeAdvisor is always free to use. Nice. I'll check it out. Go to HomeAdvisor.com or download the free app. HomeAdvisor. Relief factor, pain relief that's natural, pain relief that works, and pain relief that attacks the source of the pain. That's the experience of tens of thousands of Americans who are taking Relief Factor right now. See their incredible video endorsements at relieffactor.com and then order your three-week quick starter pack for just $19.95. That's less than a dollar a day. Find out if it can work for you like it works for me by ordering your three-week quick starter pack today. Relieffactor.com, relieffactor.com. Be the next success story. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to The Brian Hyde Show. My guest today is James Harrigan, and I'm just I'm picking his ample brain about some very timely topics. And I, I saw this come up on my uh, email yesterday since I subscribed to the Foundation for Economic Education's uh, you know, regular email updates. And, James, I saw a column from you and Anthony Davies, your co-host on the Words and Numbers podcast, about how we are losing respect for the law. And the rule of law is, is something that uh, people really don't feel like it has much substance. Walk, walk us through uh, the thought process that went into penning this column. Right. Uh, we, we really took this idea up when, frankly, we sat in our respective homes and watched riots on television that just only grew. Right. You could see the stress across the country, city to city, just bubbling right over. And we started to think, OK, should people really be behaving this way? Is this natural? Is this what they want? And I don't think, I hesitate to use the word any, but I think almost nobody wants that to be the case, right? The, the 
protesting like they did in the streets. And I think you have to consider right now the fact that everybody's been locked up in their houses for five months. And that's going to yield a certain kind of stress that simply amplifies whatever else happens. Right. So we've got these people who are functionally under house arrest and then they take to the streets to to demonstrate against what they saw properly, I, I think, in my opinion, as an outright murder uh, at the hands of the police, the, the murder of Floyd, uh, of George Floyd. Um, well, all right, that tells us a couple of things. But the thing that it really tells us that nobody ever talks about is that our respect for the law itself is dissipating over time, right? It, these are things that would never have happened 20, 30 years ago, right? There were, there were problems 20, 30 years ago. But really, I don't think we've seen this kind of thing since 1968, which was uh, a low watermark uh, in terms of lousy behavior, right, on the part of the people. And and we're right back to it. And I think a lot, if not most of that anger is perfectly justified. Now, what they do to express the anger might not be. And I have a very, I have a very short fuse for people who engage in property destruction to make a point. And I think that's almost always a terrible move. But notice what I said is almost always a terrible move. So I'm going to leave open certain possibilities. You could construct a case where, okay, maybe it makes some sense. But by and large, when people behave this way, it yields out nothing but problems. And and here we are, right? So what do we do to bring some respectability back to the law? Because that's what has to happen, right? The American people have to respect the law or they will not follow it. And you start asking yourself some questions. And I, I often ask young people when I talk in high schools or colleges, I ask, can you name a single thing that you do in the course of an average day that government has no part in? Wow. I bet that's tough. Think, think about it for a minute. Brian, use your own life. Think about that for a minute. Walk through from the minute you wake up in the morning to the minute you go to bed at night. Is there anything? you do that's not regulated or legislated no the the regulation is just about all encompassing it really is it really is and you know when young people start answering this question and i shoot down their answers like fish in a barrel they always get to one that i can't quite shoot down and they say i can think whatever i want okay and and yeah that's true if and only if you don't act on it yeah, keep it to yourself because, and, and you'll be because okay. we got a lot of we got a lot of crimes that take into account <clears throat> what you were thinking. So even that there's no free pass there. So what you end up seeing is that from morning to night, everything you do is regulated and legislated. And if that's true, how free are you? I'm not asking how you are free. I'm asking how free are you? Very different question. And the answer to that question is not very. And then you have to come to terms with the fact that we did it to ourselves. We founded this country on an idea. Very strange way to found a country. Um, from there, we built a constitution to operationalize that idea. Very strange way to build a constitution. And then we used the legislative process over a couple of hundred years to build out what we now have a regime so top-heavy with rules, regulations, and laws that we can't see past them anymore. Uh, people will say, I don't know how accurate it is, but notice it doesn't, I don't immediately feel like a liar when I say it. People will say, you commit three felonies a day in the United States without ever even realizing it. 
And you know what? That's actually plausible. I know I break many, many laws every day, if only considering the speed limits that are posted on the side of the road. Um, And as long as that happens, what we're seeing is a lack of respect afforded the laws. And I think the reason why is because the laws are no longer respectable. Is I think people, generally speaking, are pretty bright. They understand their own lives. They understand what they need and want. And they also understand that the law has largely become arbitrary. And if you get pulled over by a cop, he's going to find something you did if he doesn't like you. And that's really no way for people to think if we're going to have a nation of laws instead of a nation of men. And that was the goal in in the United States, right? Thomas Paine told us this in 1776. In America, he said, the law is king. Well, I don't think that's true anymore. And I don't know when it started to be untrue, but I don't think it's true anymore. So let me ask you this. Are there times when we have a duty to to disrespect the law or or to ignore the law? I I clearly think so. Um, but, But this is a calculus that has to be done by each individual, right? I don't think you can have an absolute statement here. There is some level at which uh, laws become so fundamentally unjust that everybody should rise up against them. We're not there, right? And, and, and you know we're not there because we don't have human chattel slavery, which was the biggest stain on the American existence. So where it begins, I'm not so sure. At some point, we all have a duty, but prior to that, it might be wise, Right? And, and this is the world that you have to live in. It's a very gray world. It's not black and white. And I'll tell you this, right? I'm, I'm a middle-aged man <clears throat> on the best of days, and I have children and a mortgage and things like this. I'm going to have a pretty low profile when it comes to getting involved with breaking the law to make a point. Um, the 20-year-old version of B would have been right off in the trenches. So even these sorts of things, I think, need to be sorted out what you can expect reasonably from from people. I don't know that there is a clear answer, and and that's always the problem, right? Because people turn on the news, they watch Fox, they watch MSNBC, and God help me, they even watch CNN. And what's the message they pull away from that? I can tell you the right answer in 45 seconds. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, well you know, and, and think about it. What's the thing you hear most often on 24-hour news networks? We're out of time. How the hell are you out of time? 24 hours a day you broadcast. But people are encouraged to get everything in that soundbite, that 45-second version. And the people who hear that for years and years and years on end come to believe, uh, irrationally so, I think, but understandably so, they come to believe that you can get to the right answer in about 45 seconds. And you can't. Life is very complicated. Yeah, and with time for commercials, no less. So, James, we've got about a minute left here. Um, It sounds like one of the first things a person would want to do, if they want to be clear on this kind of stuff, is learn how to make the distinction between legal and illegal and right and wrong. Any suggestions on how somebody can go about that? Yeah, I I think you've got to start by maybe studying a little bit of philosophy, which, which centers on the question of right and wrong, correct and incorrect, just and unjust, right? Things like this. I don't think you have to make a life of it, but it's a language you should be familiar with. And for our people here in the United States, you really probably want to start with American things. Start with Thomas Jefferson, right? There you go. Read the Constitution. Read the Federalist that explains what the Constitution is and why. Read John Locke, who was a a real influence on those guys who wrote these documents. 
these sorts of things. And hey, maybe listen more to the Brian Hyde Show or come over and listen to Words and Numbers because <laughs> we do cover these things from time to time. Right? That you do. James Harrigan, thank you so much for being my guest. I look forward to the next chance we have to visit. The pleasure was mine, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show, my fellow wrong thinker. And a quick shout-out and thanks to our sponsors, Firesteel.com, as well as the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I'm telling you, these fire steel fire starters are, they are something that, it, it seems obvious, okay? It seems like every 72-hour kit, every emergency kit that you have, every vehicle kit that you possess ought to have some means of starting a fire. Whether it's a book of matches or a lighter, better still, get a fire steel. Go to firesteel.com. You can see lots of great videos. They'll show you exactly how easy it is to use one of these, and you can make thousands. I'm talking thousands and thousands of fires where you would have to have many, many boxes of matches or tons of lighters. These work in any weather conditions. Very good stuff. Firesteel.com. When you get to checkout, put in Brian. That's the coupon code Brian. They'll give you a nice 10% discount. All right, back to the show. This is an age in which, uh, I, I don't know how to put it, other than we live in a very Orwellian time. It seems like in the last couple of weeks particularly, I've seen a resurgence of people who have rediscovered either 1984 or, curiously, Animal Farm. Seems to have been one of Orwell's works that has, has really, uh, people have issued a challenge. Hey, have you read Animal Farm lately? Of the people who have picked up these books, almost every single person that I have seen who has responded went, holy cow. This is describing the kind of society that we live in today. And it's like, no, we're, we're not, you know, strictly speaking, we're not exactly in, uh, in you know, the kind of ing-so-sh world of 1984. It's not exactly Animal Farm, but the, the trends are there. And when we hear the term Orwellian, yeah, there's definitely some Orwellian stuff going on in our world. Which is why when it comes to, to all of the different political movements out there, I mean, look, even the mainstream political movements are very Orwellian in how they name things. Case in point, the Patriot Act. Enacted, you know, in the, in the fear and anger right after September 11th, 2001. You know, it, it was uh, with a name like Patriot Act. Wow, it's got to be good. It was, you know, up to the point where it was gutting essential liberties and essential protections against abuse of government power. That's what I mean. And, and you'll see this with virtually every piece of legislation. Whatever the name says, it's almost a sure thing that it does the opposite. And nowhere will you find a more Orwellian approach than within the social justice movement. Brian Kaplan, in a piece that was published on everythingvoluntary.com, does one of the best breakdowns of this. I want to share this with you because I think this is, this is the greatest example of new think new speak and why you and I should be wrong thinkers don't be afraid of being a wrong thinker because there's there's something very Orwellian happening here and, and the competition the battle is for your mind and he starts Brian Kaplan starts with a quote from 1984 the Ministry of Peace concerns itself with war 
the ministry of truth with lies, the ministry of love with torture, and the ministry of plenty with starvation. It just seems like such a great place to start. Brian Kaplan says, Earth houses a multitude of political movements vastly worse than social justice or the wokeness crusade. For instance, uh, North Korean and Chinese communism, Islamic fundamentalism, Russian nationalism, all have far worse intentions and have done far more harm than wokeness ever will. Even in the United States, anti-immigrant conservatism has unjustly ruined far more lives in the last four years than social justice warriors are likely to ruin in my lifetime. He says, still, there is one way in which social justice stands out from the competition, and that is, out of all of the major political movements on Earth, none is more Orwellian than social justice. No other movement is so dedicated to achieving the opposite of what its slogans proclaim, or so aggressive in the warping of language. While every ideology is prone to a little double-think, Social justice is doublethink at its core. And by the way, he starts with, the, there's an there's a image at the very beginning of his story here that uh, starts with, we believe black lives matter. Love is love. Feminism is for everyone. No human being is illegal. Science is real. Be kind to all. Those are the guises under which you're going to hear most of these slogans, but wait till you hear him take these apart. And it's not that he's telling you that this is something you should be violently against. He's just pointing out that the double think is so strong here. He says, to see what I'm talking about, picture North Korean and Chinese communism. Their official story is that totalitarian rule by the Communist Party is wonderful, and they impose totalitarian rule by their respective communist parties. The official story of Islamic fundamentalism is that fanatical Muslim theologians should enforce the teachings of a 7th century book, and when in power, they do so. The official story of Russian nationalism is that authoritarian Russians should rule Russia with an iron hand and sadistically dominate neighboring countries, and they do so with gusto. In contrast, the official story of the social justice movement is that we should swear eternal devotion to diversity and inclusion. Yet in practice, they strive to achieve uniformity via exclusion. He says the recent University of California scandal is an elegant example. In affected departments, job candidates had to write a diversity and inclusion statement. Now, unless candidates vigorously supported the social justice movement through word and action, the faculty never even got to see their applications. How vigorously? Well, to reach the next stage of review, applicants needed a minimum score, minimum average score of 11 on this rubric. And he's got a link you can follow to see exactly how they went about this. Since a rank-and-file dogmatic ideologue would probably only score a 9, this cutoff predictably causes ideological uniformity of Orwellian dimensions. But here's where it gets interesting. Here's where he gets down to brass tacks. He says, more generally... The diversity and inclusion movement is nominally devoted to fervent anti-racism. In practice, however, they are the only prominent, openly racist movement I've encountered during my life in the United States. That's a bold thing to say, but I don't question what he's saying. I think he's right. He says nowadays they routinely mock and dismiss critics for the color of their skin and then accuse those they mock and dismiss of white fragility. Just one prominent recent case, quote, The signatories, many of them white, wealthy, and endowed with massive platforms, argue that they are afraid of being silenced, that so-called cancel culture is out of control, and that they fear for their jobs and free exchange of ideas, even as they speak from one of the most prestigious magazines in the country. End quote. 
talking about the Harper's letter. Yes. Number two, the diversity and inclusion movement doesn't just bizarrely redefine racism as prejudice plus power. Since their movement combines real, or rather explicit, racial prejudice with great power, they neatly fit their own Newspeak definition. Number three, a popular social justice lawn sign includes the plank, Be Kind to All. Yet the movement greets even mild criticism from friends with hostility and firm disagreement with rage, plus the harshest punishments they can arrange, especially ostracism from high-skilled employment. Number four, while we're on the subject of being kind to all, Brian Kaplan says, let me point out that making harsh, ill-founded accusations against any large unselective group, such as a race, gender, or age bracket, is the opposite of kind. Yet the social justice movement hasn't just heaped collective guilt on whites, males, and the old. It has heaped scorn on even mild pushback, like not all men are sexist. Basic kind, kindness, rather, in contrast, enjoins you to A, calmly investigate the validity of your accusations before voicing them, B, carefully distinguish between misunderstandings and malice, C, reassure innocent bystanders before you call out the demonstrably guilty. Number five, the love is love slogan is comparably Orwellian. Thanks to hashtag me too, Almost every person who values his job now is too terrified to even meekly ask a coworker out on a date. Where's the love there? When faced with compelling evidence that male managers were responding to the climate of fear by avoiding mentoring or social contact with female coworkers, the hashtag MeToo reaction was not to mend fences but to make further threats. Now, number six, the science is real claim would also bring a grim smile to Orwell's face. The diversity and inclusion movement shows near zero tolerance for the pile of scientific research that estimates the share of group performance gaps that stem from discrimination versus other factors. Instead, they A, ignore the science, B, speak as if the science shows the share, as if science shows the share is 100%, and C, treat people who discuss the actual science as if they're personally guilty of discrimination. Same goes for any unwelcome scientific conclusions about gender, sexuality, academic performance, etc. Either embrace the foregone conclusions of social justice or risk the wrath of the movement. Just beneath that propaganda lies uniformity via exclusion. All right, there are a couple more uh, aspects here. We're going to get to those in just a few moments, but I, I want to encourage you, go to the show notes. You'll find them at thebrianhideshow.com. They're under today's date, August 7th, show notes. Click on this story. Follow the links within Brian Kaplan's article. There is a treasure trove of information. Look, you got the weekend ahead of you. It's not like you won't have time to do some digging, but I promise you will come away better informed than ever. This is really, really good stuff. We'll be back right after this. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. And once again, thanks to our sponsors, including our friends at firesteel.com and the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Just was sharing with you an article, The Uniformity and Exclusion Movement. 
This is from Brian Kaplan, who is writing about the social justice movement. And look, he, he readily admits there are worse political movements out there. You want to look at North Korean communism or Chinese communism or Russian nationalism or Islamic fundamentalism. Yeah, there are, there are tougher political movements, but none are as Orwellian. And he does a great job of describing some of the ways in which the social justice movement is by far the one most guilty of engaging in doublethink, newspeak, which I guess is the reason why you and I have the uh, have the option, if not the duty, to be wrong thinkers. At least if we're if we're trying to promote uh, you know actual principles of freedom, free markets, freedom of conscience, private property, etc. Back to uh, Brian Kaplan's article. He says, what's the relationship between Orwellian language and the Mott and Bailey fallacy? And by the way, there is a link that explains the Mott and Bailey fallacy. In a nutshell, the Bailey is, the, uh, is, uh, is an area like a, an open field, meadows or whatever, surrounding the Mott, which is like a battle tower. And the, the Mott is where people would retreat if they had to defend themselves from, uh, you know, attackers. But most of their time was spent in the Bailey, where they were, you know, growing crops and living life and soaking up the sunshine. So the the idea being, you only go to the Mott if, if things are extreme. Most of the time, you spend your time in the happier Bailey. But there's a much better explanation. Again, follow the link and you can see. What's the relationship between Orwellian language and the Mott and Bailey fallacy? Well, he says it's quite distant. See, Orwellian language amounts to saying the opposite of the truth. Mott and Bailey, in contrast, is about strategically toggling between moderate and extreme versions of your creed. So sometimes feminism is the moderate view that women should be treated as fairly as men. Yet the rest of the time, feminism is the extreme view that women should be treated as fairly as men, but totally aren't in this depraved, sexist society. You see the difference? Okay. Number eight. He says, if all of this is true, how come I'm not too scared of Big Brother to write it? Now listen to his answer, because this is interesting. He says, tenure is a big part of it. The official point of tenure is to make professors feel free to voice unpopular truths. And I'm all about unpopular truths. Still, he says, I'm no martyr. If I were looking for an academic job, I would shut up. I hope many tenure-seeking readers feel the same yearning to voice unpopular truths with impunity, though I fear your numbers are few. Number nine, what's the least Orwellian feature of the social justice movement? Support for illegal immigrants, of course. First world countries really do treat illegal immigrants like subhumans. And to its credit, the social justice movement offers them moral support with the poetic slogan, no human being is illegal. But he says, yet sadly, the volume of this moral support is barely audible because the movement has so many higher priorities. If its activists took the immense moral energy they waste on costumes and jokes and careless speech and redirected it toward the cause of free migration, he says, I'd forgive their Orwellian past today. Number 10, meta question. Why do Orwellian movements exist at all? Why doesn't each movement say what it means and mean what it says? Marketing is the easy answer. When your true goals are awful, you resort to deceptively pleasant packaging to keep forward momentum. Now, while this story makes sense, he says it's incomplete. The most Orwellian movements actually revel in the contradiction between word and deed, even in the contradiction between word and word. Brian Kaplan says the best explanation is that submission to an Orwellian creed is a grade A loyalty test. Insisting that all your members admit that the sky is blue 
doesn't weed out the doubters and fair-weather soldiers, insisting that all your members admit that the sky is green or there is no sky. In contrast, selects for fanatics and yes-folk. And sadly, those are the sort of people movements like diversity and inclusion appreciate. He does point out, by the way, social justice is, of course, a selective movement. You can disaffiliate any time you'd like. And if you don't want to be blamed for the poor behavior of your compatriots, maybe you should. All right. Again, I'll have this linked in the show notes from Brian Kaplan. Just go to the com and look up today's show notes, today being August 7th. I haven't weighed in on the TikTok thing, and I'm going to do so now just because I have kids who I guess enjoy TikTok. I'm apparently over the hill. It just doesn't interest me. I mean, I, I can't remember the last time I posted a video of me dancing. It's not something that would be pretty, and that's why I haven't posted it. But isn't it interesting that, uh, you know, of all the priorities in the world, of all the things going on, there's a pandemic, there's economic collapse forming, there's, you know, there are war clouds on the horizon in the South Pacific. Wow. What does the president do? I'm going to ban TikTok for security reasons. Now, there's a great article by Julian Sanchez that uh, I, I thought was was right on on target. If, if no other reason, then it makes a wonderful mafia illusion. The, the title is Nice Streaming Business You Got There. It says on Monday, America witnessed a stunningly brazen act of what can only be called political gangsterism. Speaking from the White House, President Donald Trump declared that for security reasons, the popular video sharing platform TikTok which is owned by a Chinese company called ByteDance, would be shut down in the United States by September 15th, or on September 15th, rather, unless it were purchased by Microsoft or another American firm. Moreover, since the government was effectively forcing the sale by threatening to shutter TikTok, Trump expected the U.S. Treasury to get a piece of the action, though the exact legal mechanism by which the government would take payment for this, quote, service was left vague. Nonetheless, Julian Sanchez says it's worth quoting Trump's explanation at length. Here's what Trump says. I did say that if you buy it, whatever the price is, that that goes to whoever owns it, because I guess it's China, essentially. But more than anything else, I said a very substantial portion of that price is going to have to come into the Treasury of the United States, because we're making it possible for this deal to happen. Right now, they don't have any rights unless we give it to them. So if we're going to give them the rights... It has to then it has to come into it has to come into this country. It's a little bit like the landlord tenant relationship Uh, without a lease. The tenant has nothing. So they pay what is called key money or they pay something. But the United States should be reimbursed or should be paid a substantial amount of money because without the United States, they don't have anything, at least having to do with the 30 percent. So I told him that I think we're going to have uh, maybe a deal is going to be made. It's a great asset. It's a great asset. But it's not a great asset in the United States unless they have the approval of the United States. So it'll close down on September 15th unless Microsoft or somebody else is able to buy it and work out a deal, an appropriate deal. So the Treasury of the really the Treasury, I suppose you would say, of the United States gets a lot of money, a lot of money, end quote. Now, I really wanted to read that in my best uh, fat Tony from The Simpsons voice. But uh, holy cow. As Julian Sanchez points out, let's not mince words. That's the mafia's business model. We'll threaten your competitor, forcing them to sell the business cheap, but we expect our cut in return. So the national security powers of the executive branch are now officially muscle for hire. Now you might wonder, and reasonably so, 
How could an app best known for videos of teenagers dancing and lip syncing pose a national security threat in the first place? A threat so dire it justifies the use of emergency powers to close down an expressive platform used by millions of Americans every day. Can a president even do that? Well, Julian Sanchez says, let's start with a supposed threat. Like many other apps, TikTok collects quite a bit of data about its users. Some obvious, like personal profile information, some less so, like device configuration, location on videos that have been geotagged. The data is stored on U.S. servers with backups in Singapore. And the American CEO of the company's U.S. subsidiary says they would not share it with the Chinese government. But in theory, under China's security laws, the parent company, ByteDance, could be ordered to produce that data to the Chinese government for some presumptively nefarious purpose. Julian Sanchez says, as other analysts have noted, there's something very odd about singling out TikTok as the focus of panic on this front, as the type of personal data collected would be of relatively low intelligence value to China. Contrast the recent uh, compelled divestiture of the gay dating app Grinder by Chinese firm Kunlun, where there was at least an intelligible argument that the specific nature of the data collected made it uniquely useful for blackmail. Now, one can imagine how such information might be abused by a government interested in monitoring its own citizens. But it's harder to articulate any coherent reason Midwestern teens posting cat videos should fear that Maoists are scrutinizing their system or geotags. Now, there's much more to this article. The bottom line, though, is Trump's threat is an egregious affront to American values on multiple levels. If Microsoft is unable to reach a deal with TikTok, the president has pledged to unilaterally use the powers of his office to destroy a vast platform for speech and expression whose users recently embarrassed him, invoking a vague and speculative national security threat ostensibly posed by a company that has not, as yet, been accused of any actual wrongdoing. That's the kind of thing you would expect to see in China, says Julian Sanchez, not in the United States. Thanks again for joining us. Again, check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. We'll catch up with you next time. This is The Brian Hyde Show.